what conditions are stipulations. Alright. Um, Epcats. Epcats After Dark. Um, well, welcome to our first Extended Universe session of Teaching the Amendments. Um, so for those of you who somehow found this without knowing me, um, I'm Mackenzie Brennan. I am a co-host on Exceedingly Persuasive, which is a podcast where we talk about law, policy, the intersection with socio-cultural anything. Um, sometimes it means history, sometimes it means current events, uh, but the law intersects with a lot of a lot of things in the past and present and explains a lot of them. So that is what I do on the side. In my day job, I am an attorney. Right now, I work for the New York Court System's Office for Justice Initiatives, but this is only in my personal capacity that I'm doing this. So stressing that up top. But um, so I work there for the Deputy Chief Administrative Judge of New York. And previously, I TA'd for constitutional law. And my dead dad was a constitutional scholar. So it is a subject close to my heart and that I felt morally obligated to learn uh, at an early age when he died. So suffice to say, I have uh, done a fair amount of research and I think that it's something that a lot of folks um, would like to understand, but hey, it's tough to do that if you don't have the drive from a parent dying to open the tomes of nonsense that make up not only the Constitution itself and intent behind it, whether we should even use that intent, but also the decades on decades on decades of sometimes conflicting jurisprudence from the Supreme Court of the United States, which ultimately is where we get a lot of our interpretation, because this is getting ahead of ourselves amendment-wise, but there's something in the Constitution called the Supremacy Clause, which um, essentially says that Constitution is here. Top billing if it has jurisdiction on whatever issue comes up. So it's like, if the Constitution talks about the topic that we're talking about, it always wins. The Supreme Court then, uh, based on Marbury versus Madison, which is a case that you might have heard back in high school history, um, they have this thing called judicial review, etc., etc. Maybe we'll do an episode breaking down, like, what's what with the Constitution? Let's backtrack a little bit, because I don't want to get too lost in that. But the bottom line is, there are state courts, federal courts, but the Constitution rules them all. And if state laws are in conflict with the Constitution, and the Constitution says something about that topic, state law is struck down. But that is subject to who's on the court, and... Um, who appoints people to the court. So this will be the first of many plugs to care about the executive of the country, AKA the president, and care about who's appointed to the courts. Um, because all of this stuff, whether it be state or federal, oftentimes there's some connection to who's on that court, which is why we're in such dire times. So on that bright note, let us start with the First Amendment. Where else are we gonna start? Um, the First Amendment is a doozy. It has like 90 different rights packed into it that apparently my thinking is like the founders couldn't decide which one was the most fundamental. So they're like, you know, we'll just put them all in one run on sentence. Um, 
So that's the one where you get freedom of religion. Within that, there are two different clauses. There's the establishment. I won't get... We'll get there. We'll get there in a later episode. But there, so there's freedom of religion, freedom to assemble, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom to petition your government for redress, which is, um, I guess at this point, like, change.org. Um, because it doesn't guarantee any procedure from the governmental end. It's just like, you can you can petition them. Um, so that's not really going to command its own episode. Um, we'll lump it in with the, the free speech piece, because that is a huge part of the driving force behind free speech, is that, you know, the country that we came from, which was way back in the day, the United Kingdom, that we were trying to get free of, because um, they taxed our tea and whiskey and, you know, no representation, all that monarchical nonsense, which we are so free of now. They didn't really, because they were a monarchy, didn't really allow the same kind of um, say in the press, in common parlance. You know, you were a traitor if you spoke against the king. Um, you couldn't petition your government for redress. So even if we're not guaranteeing the redress, even if we're not guaranteeing anything beyond the right to speak, um, our founders found that pretty important. But let's let's look at the actual text, which, again, I'm excerpting the free speech piece of this. So it's pretty short. It says, Congress shall make no law, dot, 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 abridging the freedom of speech or press. Um, and we're not going to talk too much about, you know, journalistic or press-based stuff today. In fact, I think we might want to split even free speech into two pieces, because once we get into hate speech and the fact that that is legal, but that hate crimes are illegal and threats are illegal. There are some really tricky lines to draw that the courts are still struggling to draw, especially as the internet gets bigger. And um, hell, <laughs> presidents and their parties are taking their very real fights to the internet. So the that's going to be a really rocky territory and it, it gets kind of nuanced when you're drawing lines around different territories. Um, but we will start with just the speech piece um, and the basics of, you know, why it's so fundamental, uh, what the driving forces were in establishing this right, and to the extent that we want to consider it, because the founder's intent is not everything. In fact, originalism and original intent, uh, such as they brand themselves, is a relatively new way of thinking about the Constitution. It came about in the 80s, around when Scalia came up. He was the, the introducer of that school of thought. So the founder's intent isn't always the, um, the rule book that they intended us to look at, if that makes sense. But it, just for history's sake, on a real surface scratching level, it, it's good to think of like what the pitfalls were that they saw as potentially falling into as a society, what they were trying to avoid, um, what was so important, like top of the list for them to protect. And that will get us into the different categories of speech. So the way that we've conceptualized the First Amendment today kind of looks at different types of speech and measures them on a spectrum of most protected, hallowed, this is what the amendment is there to protect. Um, thou shalt not touch it, government and lawmakers. Down to like 
eh, this is not the most societally valuable speech. And there are some some downsides to it, like advertising falls in, in this category as a quick example. Um, that like, yeah, there should be some limits on what you can say in ads, but also it's important to have, you know, a, a marketplace of ideas. So we can limit it a little bit. And then there's the not protected, which is the category of speech that the courts and government have decided, like, there is little to no societal value that measures anything against the harm that it does. So it doesn't fall under the free speech protection, you can limit it. Child pornography is one because uh, expressive speech falls under the, the speech category. So symbolism and images and stuff like that, that all counts as speech. So child porn being an <laughs> expressive form of media that is one that is unprotected, is solidly unprotected, not just a little unprotected or less protected, there's, there is no legal protection for that. So, and that makes sense. I, I tried to use the, the clearest examples because it does get more muddy, obviously, when you go into things like obscenity, which, eh, is that fully bad? No, not really. And maybe you should be free to do that. And also what's obscene? So how do we limit that? Um, but some clear cut examples are advertising is like, meh, we can limit it a little. And then child porn is just like, we don't give a shit. We have no concern for protecting that as a mode of expression. So that's a bit of an outline. Um, also at the top, after we go through some of the hallowed intentions of our founders and what brought this amendment about, um, I do want to talk about <laughs> what it doesn't cover in terms of actors and platforms, because the context in which I've heard this amendment brought up so much more than any other context in recent probably years now, and I'm, I imagine the same for you, is people invoking it to be like, I don't want to be canceled. I don't want people to accuse this guy of sexual assault. Um, I don't want to be criticized. Um, I want to stay on this social media platform. Things like that are invoked under the free speech umbrella. Uh, free speech, small case F and small case S, like that, sure, I guess. But if we're talking about what's protected by the Constitution, which I assume is usually what they mean, if we're talking about the First Amendment, you can go back to the text. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. So unless the actor is a government actor or a law enforcement actor, you know, think state or federal employee. Um, and the thing that they are invoking to limit you is not acting in their private capacity, not, um, you know, expressing their personal opinion or even like attacking you in just as person on person, like if they get in a street fight with you, I don't know. Unless they're using the law as the basis for abridging or punishing or penalizing your conduct in whatever way, unless you hit both of those things, that it is a law enforcement person and that it is the law itself that is being invoked to limit you, you don't have a free speech thing. There's nothing at all related to the First Amendment going on there, at least the free speech piece. So 
Well, um, we'll go through a couple examples in a moment of, of what does and doesn't apply. But um, let's just do a, a crash course on the history and philosophy of the founders and the free speech portion of the First Amendment. So uh, we went through the other ones in the first, which obviously, you know, they didn't write this anywhere that I'm aware of, but they, they probably put it first for a reason. So you look at the ones that are there and whether that reason was that those were, you know, things that had been limited by the prior government um, or they were generally important, who's to say, hard to say, um, hard to even make that distinction. You know, things feel pretty important when they're being infringed upon. So, but whatever way you slice it, they're important. They were seen as pretty fundamental if they're putting them in the First Amendment. Um, oh, and just so you know, the first 10 amendments, that's the Bill of Rights. So there is, um, for those who might not know that there's overlap between the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, that counts as the Bill of Rights. So it also is in the Bill of Rights. It's the first one on that billing as well. So, um, oh yeah, so the next thing I have is just connecting it to you know, monarchy backlash and the fact that, especially, think of the British Empire, the monarch was really untouchable. And it, to simplify a massively storied history and complicated legacy into something that's basically just like a reduced assessment, it's probably because these were inbred like untrained assholes, entitled assholes who got the throne because they came out of the right hole, um, or more accurately sprung from the right seed. And so they, the only protection that they had against criticism was just like, you can't laugh at me. Um, so there were, there were massive constructs of laws designed to prevent any criticism. Um, and for George III, who was the king at the time that the, the U.S. decided, you know, we're enough, enough is enough, we're done, we're out of here, um, and had a little war about it, if you recall. Mm. He was super nutty. He was, um, he was insane. Again, as were so many, because they were inbred. Uh, but you think back in his own lineage, and Henry VIII, would slice people's heads off if they were insubordinate or wanted to worship differently. Um, so this was not a legacy in the recent past, in the minds of the founders, that um, allowed anybody to express their opinions uh, about things that affected them very seriously. Um, the no taxation without representation thing was a battle cry, but it was real. It was uh, the monarchy went broke and they didn't have money to fight wars. And so they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the US is doing, or I guess the colonies are doing well right now. Uh, they have a lot of natural resources. Just up the, the money that they have to give us because they're doing, and we can just use that to fight our wars. So they, they were edging towards like a territory of indentured servants in and of themselves. Um, and they couldn't vote. They couldn't say, like, actually, we would like to not be taxed, which um, 
What's the problem? People get upset about that. Uh, and then plus the taxes that they upped were the ones on like tea, which, okay, that's great. Um, but also whiskey because there was the whiskey rebellion. So it's like, okay, you're going to tax us from buying booze so that you can go fight your wars and we can't even vote on it. It's tale as old as time. Um, so the right to vote being obviously pretty closely tied with the right to express oneself because what's the predecessor to voting? It's campaigning and it's expressing that opinion. Um, so that's the, the like socio-geographical context that we're coming into this with. Um, and then there are values that are considered important in a representative democ democracy. Um, and what are we? We're a democratic republic. So yeah, swap the wording. But so in a representative democracy, even though, yes, there is a, a fail stop between us and voting for a lot of things directly, being the Electoral College, um, that's a story for another day. But um, there are a lot of values that are related to individual autonomy and being able to express yourself. And even if your views are reprehensible and even if you are an asshole, uh, it doesn't mean that you're immune from then criticism or other consequences, like say not being elected if you're running for office, not getting a job if you are interviewing and you say asshole things. Um, not having friends, like not getting married, not, uh, I say this as a divorcee, so no shade to unmarried people. I don't even like that I use that example. Oh, geez. Not, um, I already said making friends, so there's really no other great parallel, but you can still suffer consequences is the point that I'm making. But the government can't tell you to shut up because they don't like your point of view. Um, it, and Fulfillment being part of that too, like the whole, it's going to sound very Pollyanna and I will probably reveal myself in being a constitutional scholar as somebody who does see the best of the options that this document creates for us and that these values create for us. Um, and I know that it's not true in practice and hell, that's why I went into the job that I did. So don't ever take the positive spin that I put on certain things as uh, blinders. But more, I need to feel optimistic sometimes. And there's frankly a lot to feel optimistic about in the foundational documents and values. So that's where I tend to come at things from. Um, if you don't want to feel optimistic or, or realist optimist, um, I totally get that. And frankly, there are a lot of sources that aren't me that you can go to to, uh, to nurture that one. But uh, do so with a, a little bit of a grain of salt because it can drive you insane and I say that from personal experience. Um, anyways, yeah. So personal fulfillment, it was an important value. Being able to seek your own career, not being uh, born into career paths or born out of career paths or hobbies. Um, I, I know this isn't a hobby, but like Paul Revere was a silversmith and then you decided to get into government. Uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> And you got others who were typesetters. Maybe it was also Paul Revere. Do I just know a lot about Paul Revere? That seems weird. Anyways, avocations, jobs. Um, I think of like agrarian. I'm gonna take my woman out on my plot of land and farm it and 
carve chairs and enjoy every day and look out on the Potomac and just have a darn nice life. Obviously, this didn't apply if, if we're agrarian in a slave context, which, like, did they exist outside of that? Probably not. But the, the ideal concept being there, and frankly, now this is something that we really could capitalize on um, because we don't use that kind of forced labor. Like, I think of myself during quarantine, I was like, don't get me wrong, was not thriving. Um, I cried a lot about nothing, thinking I was going to die every day, not because of the virus, but because I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? But one thing that was really nice is, like, I can mend my own clothes, and I can, uh, I can't make my own food, I, I eat cheese and bread, but I can fix the doorknob, and build a cabinet, and paint stuff, like, it's really nice, and then work in the other daytime hours, um, this is an individual fulfillment, and the idea of free speech and the values that this is founded on is like, let's do our own thing. Let's pursue our own path and have the freedom to express our worries about that, our excitement about that, our concerns about the structure of... So a lot of the stuff that you see going on now, even though it's government critical, it's exactly what was intended by this uh, piece of the amendment. Um, I think it's kind of beautiful. Pollyanna. Uh, and then, like, art being also a huge piece of government criticism and autonomy, um, and that being, especially back then, a huge means of expression. Political cartoons were very foul um, in many cases, and I, you know, things have gotten foul to, I think, a different extent, but when people are like, oh, things have really degenerated, I'm like, well, y yes and no. Because, they, you know, they were like phallic images in newspapers and pamphlets and whatnot. So art being wrapped into that free speech expression uh, value and recognizing something that may seem to us now like something too base or trivial for the founders to have considered, that actually was something that, that came into their consideration. They're bright dudes. I mean, take them with their flaws as you take everyone, and I do not minimize, nor do I censor any conversation, it's just, you know, now is not necessarily the place. Um, but they definitely were minds more brilliant than those that we've seen for a, a long-ass time. So they, they created a pretty malleable framework that has worked for us for a while. So, drink break. Um, the last value that I wanted to hit that was one of their, uh, wow, all words just fell out of my brain. I should have another sip about it. Okay. So I know I already mentioned this, but the value of the marketplace of ideas, um, which is essentially... Again, it's going to sound kind of like optimistic and Pollyanna because it sounds so nice. It sounds really great. And honestly, it sounds the same kind of great that I think about when people talk about the idealized communist society, which is not to take a stance either way, but like, oh my gosh, are you trusting people to be that nice and good? 
and not fall into the pitfalls. Or, ironically, it's the same problem that you come up with if you talk about privatized. It's like, oh yeah, 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 no, private industry and private individuals, they'll definitely, like, they won't let anyone be homeless, and, and they'll step up. It's like, but they don't. So I don't know what the governmental answer is to that, but it's just like, um, I'm all for believing our better angels exist. Obviously, I'm an optimist realist, but also, like, let's not leave these doors wide open because the marketplace of ideas, which is essentially like you throw everything and everyone into the ring and we will have faith that when it, people are given the knowledge and they have access to everything, the right pieces will win out. It's great. I think it's wonderful. I think it works. If you have a society full of people who know what to read, how to take things with a grain of salt, how to critically think, um, how to select out the information that is, say, if it's scientific, peer-reviewed, if it's on the internet, um, not some, like, random Facebook ad <laughs> to make a modern parallel. Like, that's great. That's great if you grew up with somebody teaching you, like, here's a peer-reviewed medical article. Here's a Facebook ad. This is the difference. Um, so read them both, and then when you put things in your head, don't look at it with an eye to then verify what you believe is true. Look at it with um, a critical lens and think of, is there a pitfall here? Identify the pitfalls. Um, then look for answers. Is that debunked? Oh, yes, it is by this fact. You know, so it's like, <laughs> in a weird way, it depends on parenting and education in a society, which then again depends on a lot of other policies and tax money and oh my god, um, rabbit holes. So the marketplace is great. But then you get the second tier of, it's like you fall off of this cliff of how are we raising people to even receive all this knowledge in the marketplace. And then it's like, holy shit, you roll down to the bottom. And then there's another hill. And that is the like elevation of certain ideas through money and power. So this first cliff was just assuming that we have access to everything. And yet, no, 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 we don't. Because especially now, and a lot of this stuff has become more dire or more of a question or more highlighted in the age of, of the internet and 24 hour media cycle and all these sources, which is great in so many ways, because it does level the playing field in a weird way. But the headlines that we see are the ones that pay for Facebook ads, or um, the ones that have the money to get ads on primetime. So, or even if we're seeing everything, the ones that we take notice of are the ones with good production value. So then, you know, you're adding money there or volume that we see the same ad 20 times. That's what resonates with us. Um, and this is true almost more so if even if you're not thinking about it, if it's just like going in one ear, it doesn't just go out the other. I've found with much dismay that like, shit, this absorbs stuff. So you're seeing billboards, you're seeing ads. Um, it does move the needle of how you receive certain things and how normal you see that information as being. So that's my critique of the idealized marketplace of ideas value behind the First Amendment free speech.
All right, gang, what's next? Oh, and I did want to mention here that my friend Abe Gross had asked a question about where the U.S. stands in respect to other nations' free speech protections. And we are, it's a great question, because we are the most protective of speech rights of um, certainly any other developed countries. Um, I'm not sure in terms of developing ones, because oftentimes the rule structures are in flux, so you can't really measure it in the same way. Um, but you look at Europe, East Asia, India, um, the Middle East, like Australia, Russia, so of course they don't have good free speech protections, but um, across the board, for different reasons, most other countries that are on our same tier in a, a governmental and economic power sense do not protect speech as much as we do. And when I say that in terms of the countries that are more aligned with our values, so let's take Germany, for example. Another economic power, um, another one of, of European descent that's been established as a power for a, a fairly long amount of time, obviously. Um, they, especially after World War II, got pretty restrictive in terms of what kind of hate speech you can exercise. And that's where a lot of the difference with the more progressive and relatively progressive, I do say that with an asterisk, but relatively progressive, I mean, like, compared to China cultural revolution kind of stuff. Um, the more progressive developed nations tend to limit hate speech more than we do. And that's really where the difference comes into play. Um, and again, we'll get to hate speech later. For Germany, for example, and for a lot of Europe, I think, it's because of the Nazi legacy. It's because they um, see a lot of cultural retribution, especially in the generation prior to this, that needed to be done. And I think they also see and saw and will continue to see in a different way, the damage that bigoted, violent predecessor speech has, even if it's not gotten to the step of the immediate, like, physical harm yet. That it's like, we see the slippery slope when it is so close to just rolling um, that we're just not going to chance it again. And I think in many respects, when it is bigotry based on, you know, race, class, culture, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, you know, immutable characteristics like that, um, that we, uh, we have a, a, a comparably long, proud legacy of protecting everybody's right in that marketplace of ideas. I think we're also dangerously close to seeing what an unchecked mob mentality can do with that right and how blurry the line gets between um, speech and crime in the hate genre. So more on that later. Uh, to answer Abe's question, we are very protective um, in terms of all other countries and developed governments. Um, so good for us. It's pretty cool in many ways. Hopefully that would not have to be sacrificed to limit hate speech more. Oh. 
Who the fuck am I? Don't ask me. All right. So the basics, um, before we get into the categories of speech, which will be our last thing before cutting this bad boy with the impending hate speech conversation. So who does this apply to in terms of actors, in terms of the people yelling at us? We'll, we'll simplify it to that. So where the amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging, we're talking about the actors abridging and also why they're abridging. Under what authority are they abridging our speech or conduct? Um, because, oh my God, this drives me nuts. And it's like you go through this, I don't know if it's stages of grief or if I'm feeling optimistic, I call it like personal growth that I don't pick fights with everybody anymore. But you know, you see like, love my uncles i do but they're the proverbial uncles on facebook and you know the kind of conversations i'm talking about um where someone's like wow ann coulter said that women should stay in the kitchen and now she's getting canceled i wish she has not been canceled because her audience doesn't care but it's like oh isn't it free speech to say that well yes if the government were coming to her door and throwing her in prison that would be a free speech problem. But if it's her or like, oh, who's a, a better example? Oh, okay, we can use Trump. Him getting thrown off Twitter or him getting criticized for something or somebody getting fired. I'm trying to think of a good example of... So imagine if, if Justice Clarence Thomas hadn't gotten the job and people had believed Anita Hill. Essentially, the substance of a lot of her accusations, her allegations of sexual harassment were verbal. Um, he would, there's some conduct there in the same way that speech can be expression, but he would like watch, make her watch porn in the office and talk about um, dick size and people that she slept with and her sexual experiences and, and pubic hairs on a can. And one of my favorite quotes in political history, even though I hate that Clarence Thomas was approved, I don't approve of this quote, but who has put this pubic hair on my coke is just such a belabored, ham-fisted, I don't it's an awesome quote. Um, but hey, that's verbal, right? Um, it's nasty verbal stuff. And imagine he hadn't gotten the job, which is what a Supreme Court hearing and, and the eventual vote by the Senate is. And I do remember this with Kavanaugh being a similar thing. It's like, and we'll get into this later, later with due process and like when you need due process, it's a similar conversation. It's like, well, are you actually facing a government consequence? Or in this case, in this hypothetical case, are you just not getting a job? That's not the government abridging your right to speech if they're penalizing him by not voting in his favor. It's just um, people not wanting you to serve in this job. This is actually a good transition, good job me, um, to our categorical restriction section and the hierarchy that is created in our jurisprudence of what's most important, what's most protected, and what is not. So one form of restriction that this is kind of ancillary to the whole category thing, but it's related. Because of the high premium that our founders and really our like cultural values, the legacy 
from then to now and like the usefulness of that kind of protection that for protections of free speech and expression to be valuable they must protect political and viewpoint expressions so inverse of that you cannot make regulations and laws that pass muster under the first amendment that limit based on viewpoint or political leaning say somebody passed a law that things criticizing this one politician are not allowed or things that are anti-republican or anti-democrat could be either side of the aisle um you can't post those billboards that's based ultimately it's about the viewpoint that's being expressed. So that is across the board, not an acceptable way to limit even less protected speech. You can't do it based on viewpoint. And for those of you who might've thought, but what about political parties that are mislabeled? You can go back to Red Scare, McCarthyism, communist, that that is a political viewpoint. And now, uh, what the fuck did they use during the BLM protests? Antifa um, was labeled a terrorist organization. This is where it gets really tricky when the executive doesn't play by the rules of the Constitution and they pack the courts. Because Trump appointed more federal judges than anybody in history, any president in history, and um, packed the Supreme Court with aiding beforehand from the Senate Republicans, given that they didn't give Merrick Garland a hearing, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where, like, I'm saying one thing, and it is absolutely true on the books, um, but it's not to say that there are ways to mess with that. Obviously, the Antifa thing didn't stand to the extent that you could do what I'm saying, which is pass a law, like a real binding penalty law. So that one didn't get to a point where it really could oppose the risk that we're talking about here. Not to minimize, but it's not like you weren't allowed to post things online that somebody arbitrarily labeled Antifa. Um, honestly, McCarthyism is probably the best closest example we have of that and thank goodness um there were the army mccarthy hearings and i think it was really when he started to mess with hollywood uh joseph welch the attorney working against him oh just the best if you've listened to our podcast i'm sure i've sung his praises before but he just um man joseph mccarthy comes after his like law clerk or something and joseph welch he's like at long last, have you no decency, sir? At long last. I'm like, it's just so funny and powerful. Anyways, they took him down. They stopped the whole, you know, everybody who disagrees with me is a pinko and thus not allowed to speak uh, rampage. But it was getting, that snowball was, was rolling pretty swiftly. And I think we were getting into that territory. And then you pair that with all the other structural damage that Trump did and had done. It facilitated this it, it I think it really could have gotten to that level which does jeopardize a lot of the protections that we as First Amendment advocates um, scholars whatever take for granted if Trump had gotten a second term or you know <laughs> been more organized potentially but um, yeah so take that oh Jesus 
cat's falling off my lap. That yes, viewpoint restrictions are not allowed, but well, you think it, also the Patriot Act and things like that under G.W. Bush that allowed for a lot more lenient labeling of like terrorists and what we're allowed to do if somebody's a terrorist. If we say the word terrorist, we put their name next to terrorist. Like it's okay. It's okay to just kill them. <laughs> um, this is how the government should work is what I'm saying. It's how the text and the jurisprudence and the everybody playing in good faith. And most people do play mostly in good faith, at least when it comes down to the letter of the law. I say that. So the tears. I think I went through some examples of the tears. So that's the way that we have chosen to work our speech and expression restrictions, uh, governmentally, jurisprudentially, which is the court's precedent set by the courts. That's what I mean when I say jurisprudence, that binding precedent, law of the land as made by strata of court decisions. They have determined this is how it works. Um, that we don't do it by viewpoint, for example. What we can do is choose categories, tiers of speech that, you know, we do in best of faith and research and arguments and evidence, all that good stuff. We balance out the social value, the intended purpose, the risk. The quintessential example you hear of the fact that free speech doesn't mean you can say anything all the time, is that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, which is, you think of the value of that speech, you're expressing nothing valuable. Um, there's no artistic, political, informational, um, expressive, like personal validation. There's, there's nothing that is coming from that that is of any measurable social value. So you go, this is where the, you know, philosophical and historical basis for the amendment and the thinking behind it do kind of come into play. It's like, think of why free speech was put in this first fundamental amendment and where we came from and where they wanted us to go. Um, somebody lying to create chaos in a theater. And this reasoning, I would argue, goes towards the hate speech conversation that'll come later and how we value that. But, um, there's virtually no positive value to some to protecting somebody's right to do that. And this is akin to the child porn conversation, um, that that's an, another example of unprotected, not even lower tier, but just like no protection speech. So we balance the value to the speaker or of that speech, and it's nada, it's nothing, um, versus what is the risk of allowing it? What is the harm to society? What is the harm to the people receiving that expression? Um, and in the fire in a crowded theater case, in the child pornography case, it's massively high. Um, so, and in the worst way, in the physical damage, permanent damage, for no reason, um, uh, and I should caution, fire when there is no fire in a crowded theater. Obviously, you can say it if there's a fire. And obviously, that would change the calculus of um, harm and benefit. Because if you're saying it to actually warn people that there's a fire, everybody wins. Because they should know there's a fire. And then they get out, ideally, and that's great. But just to create chaos and a stampede um, when there's no fire. So you kind of get that there's, there's a balancing. And that it's... It may seem kind of um, pedestrian, like, yeah, we're just kind of looking at the scales here. And it, it can seem very subjective, except that what we're looking at is 
fairly objective factors. How many tallies can we put in the positives to the speaker and positives to society from what the speaker may have to offer category? For example, um, this isn't something that I'm going to use in our walkthrough of the hierarchy because I'm not going to hit every category. I'm just going to do a couple banner ones or weird ones or easy ones just to kind of illustrate. But there's one category called Heckler's Veto, which obviously from the verbiage, super recent devising of that name. Um, but it's essentially that you have more protections if you are a speaker speaking to a hostile audience than you might if you're, say, inciting a riot of people who agree with you. So picture, I mean, this might nettle some folks because you're not gonna identify with the speaker, but that's kind of the point. So picture a Trump person. Who's a good Trump? Picture Tucker Carlson talking to people outside the Capitol. And picture that he was on the steps at the Capitol. He wasn't, for what it's worth, this is not defamatory, I'm not saying he was there, hypothetically. If he had been on the steps of the Capitol, he'd been saying, you really should question these results and you should go on in there and ask them. And then people broke down the door. Versus if Tucker Carlson was at the Apollo Theater in Harlem and he was talking to a bunch of non-Trump voters, well, let's say he's talking to Black Lives Matter protesters who are assembled for a different event. And they're very upset with him. That's what's called a hostile audience. His right to say those things is going to be a little bit different given the audience that he's saying it to because the balancing changes. Um, the fact that the audience disagrees with him, the value of protecting, the societal value of protecting the speech is seen as greater if there are more societal factors that um, I don't want to say mob mentality because that implies more of like a violent suppression, but like protecting the minority opinion is the idea. That if somebody is expressing violently the opinions of the majority and they're riling it up into something more violent, that's different than if somebody in the minority is speaking and they're, you know, there are forces of the majority that are going to try to suppress them already, the government should try to level that out a little bit by protecting them further, especially if it's likely to be violence or physical suppression that they're facing. So I hope that makes sense and I hope it's not too messy, but that's an example of how the balancing can change given the composition of the scenario. Um, let's see. So the most protected, most sacred is political speech. So, I mean, politics is kind of a tough, amorphous term, but it's things like expressing your views on elections and on issues and on policy, things like that, that is the ultimate protected because of the intention behind the amendment. Um, and then you got some limited categories of speech. Let's see here. Student speech. That's a good one. That, like, students at public schools, for example, there was that Tinker case, which was about the Vietnam War, and if, if students could wear protest armbands, um, ultimately that was protected. But again, you go to balancing. The reason that they ruled that it was wrong to kick this student out for wearing a black protest armband was that your protections to express opinion that's not distracting from other students' speech, not being harmful, not saying anything obscene or upsetting or disrupting classes, 
that if you're not doing any of that harmful stuff, your right to simply express yourself does not expire at the schoolhouse gates. Um, I'm paraphrasing what was actually in the opinion, but it, really poetic and I think a nice way of putting it. But obviously, there. oh boy, there was also another case where somebody had a, a banner that just said like bong hits for Jesus. And I actually forget the way that they ruled on that case. But you can see that there's kind of a spectrum of, you know, I fully endorse bong hits for Jesus banners and they're being allowed all the time. But you can argue that like the protest value diminishes there and the potentially offensive content to other students that may thus be disruptive of class time, that scale goes up. So that you see the balance tip a little bit. Bottom line is that student speech is protected, but it has comparatively limited protections to just like uh, political speech in public, for example. Um, and then you get the bottom tier child porn or perjury or um, fire in a crowded theater, that there are certain things that we have decided that there is just no social value. I think rightfully so. We're just going to fully not protect this. So in our next uh, interlude, we're going to get into the tricky categories, this messy middle ground of categories that either were deemed unprotected in a very different time, for example, fighting words, which um, in a case called Chaplinsky back like almost a century ago was somebody arrested for yelling in the town square like you're a goddamn racketeer and a fascist, which was apparently bad then. Societal values have changed in terms of how we interpret fighting words or inciting words. Um, which now has changed even further with the insurrection on the Capitol. And social media obviously changes a lot of this, but um, true threats is another category. True threats are not allowed, but with the internet, when does somebody actually mean that they're going to do any of the things that they say in the comment section? Because boy, if all those are true, I should have been dead a long time ago. But I'm not. But does that mean that they should be legal? And then obviously it's a fine line between that and hate speech. So there's a lot to reckon with here, and we'll get into that next time. Uh, I hope this was helpful. If you have any questions or critiques or further elucidation, anything, send me a line anywhere. You can find me, you can email me, I'm mkzbrennan at gmail.com. Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. I'm mkzjoybrennan, thrown in the middle name. I'm hip and young. Um, so yeah, let me know how you're feeling and thinking about any of this, and I hope it's helpful. Be well, don't get COVID, we still say that, and um, have a great week. Woo!